You know, we um, want to devote ourselves to God's word because we need to, to see. We need to see him and to experience him. We oftentimes will pray out of Ephesians 1 that, that you know, Lord, give us a, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God and let, the, and let the eyes of our heart be open. You know, your heart has eyes. What I say, your heart has it. We need, our, we need our, the eyes of our heart to be open. So an interesting fact, most of us have eyes in the room and, and all of us can see at some level or the other. I found myself when I got into the 40s, I realized I had to get up the, the proverbial reading glasses. Anybody there yet? You gotta have the reading glasses. Still haven't accepted that reality yet, but I have to have my uh, reading glasses. But still, I can, I can see, and the human eye is a marvel on what we can see. But did you know that your eye can only see 0.0038% of what actually can be seen. Think about it for a second. Your eye is only seeing 0.0038% of what can actually be seen in the electromagnetic light spectrum between the gamma rays and all the way to infrared and everything in between on the light spectrum. Isn't that kind of shocking? Now, I can't do math real well, but that means there's, I am not seeing like 99% almost, 98 plus or 98 point whatever, 70, 98.7% of what's in the room right now. Think about that. There in the room with us right now is stuff that we're not seeing. 98% of what's in the room right now, we're not seeing. Isn't that crazy? And we really think we are an enlightened people. That, well, we just see everything. No, we are, I mean, even our natural eyes misses so much, right? So that's why the word teaches us that we need to walk by faith and not by natural sight. And God's word knows exactly what it was talking about because if we are walking by our natural sight and we are not seeing 98% of what can be seen, we're missing out on a lot of stuff around us. Would you not agree? So if God begins to open the eyes of our heart, abounding in the love of God for real discernment, what is real discernment? Being able to see what's really around us through our heart, getting the spiritual insights from what's available through God's word and what's around us. I believe if we start praying that way, we're going to see a lot more than we could ever imagine. Amen? All right. Well, let's, do you have your notes? And listen, um, if you want to, if you are a techie and you have your device with you at mynewbridge.church, you can go there, you can scroll down and you can click on message notes and all the notes are there from the last couple of weeks and tonight's as well. So you can refer to those as well. If that's, if that's helpful, you can, you can print those out or you can not look at them at all. Uh, do we have any more of those? Yeah, we do. If you didn't get one, would you put your hand up? Thanks so much. Thank you, Henry. Got a few more right there. Just put your hand. We'll put it right in your hand. Yeah. It's what I handed out last week because we didn't get, um, we didn't get done. All right. Very quickly, in review, right, we are talking about how we process information that it can lead to transformation in our life. So everything that we do in our natural bodies, everything we learn has to either come through the eye gate or through the ear gate, what we read and what we hear. So everything comes to us as information. We gain information, but the goal is, is not for it to stay information. There's actually a process that's going to bring about the kind of change that we want. So the goal is, is to convert information to what? revelation. Something has to convert it though. Something has to take the information and convert it to revelation. Remember what that thing was? What was that? Faith. So it's not just enough to have information. We have to believe what we're hearing by faith. So faith converts information to truth. And what happens when you know truth? It sets us free. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. 
And we've been making the point how many of us, myself included, we, have a, we know a lot of information, but much of what we know has not yet been converted to true revelation yet. And we do really good at playing Bible trivia pursuit or Bible Pictionary. We can win those games because we have a lot of information, but it's not real revelation. So we have to have faith, we have to believe what we're receiving from God for it become revelation to us. And we talked about a couple of weeks ago, how does it feel, is there an actual feeling or an emotional response when you're getting revelation from the Lord? Does it actually, can you feel when it's happening? Now you don't wanna put everything based on feelings, I understand that, but I do believe revelation has a feeling. You know how it feels? I call it an aha moment. Have you ever had aha moments? When you're just like, oh, wow, I actually see it. It's when you begin to read and you hear and God speaks to your heart truths and, and it awakens the inside of you and you can, you can feel something's happening in you. It's not just the acquisition of more information, it's the revelation of, of God striking your heart because you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. So we're kind of understanding here that, that truth is not information, truth is actually a person. Jesus said in John 14 that I am what? The way, the truth, and the life. So when the Bible says that you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free, it's not saying that you shall know lots of information and you'll be free, it means that you shall know Jesus and Jesus will make you free. So as we learn the Bible, the, the, the point of God's word is to introduce us in an ever increasing fashion to the person of Jesus Christ. It's possible to learn the Bible and not know anything about Jesus. I'm convinced I had professors in graduate school that knew the information of the Bible way better than I did, but they had little knowledge of Jesus but they knew the Bible really well. So it's possible to acquire a lot of information and quote a lot of scripture and know a lot of Bible and never know the person of Jesus. And that's a sad thing. But the truth is God's word is Jesus. John chapter one says, in the beginning was the word. And John one goes on to say, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we see Jesus equal sign, word slash truth. So everything that we learn always points back to knowing who this Jesus is. And that's why we need revelation of who he is. That's why the eyes of our heart need to be open that we can receive the love of God because he is love. So information, then we believe it, it converts to revelation. And we have that aha moment. But just because we have revelation of something doesn't necessarily mean it's going to change us. Because ultimately, we want transformation. Transformation is not the same as behavior modification. Now, the world system propagates this idea that you can bring about change in your life through behavior modification, and that's true. You can, you can do that. You can alter your behavior through willpower, through training, all those things but you're not bringing about true transformation. All you're doing is putting fresh paint on the barn, you see. Just because you put fresh paint on the barn, it doesn't mean you've changed a whole lot. It looks a little better. You can put lipstick on the pig, make the pig a little prettier, I guess, but it's still a pig. Ultimately, that's kind of what behavior modification does. You can change your behavior, but you're not changing what's, what's going on inside of you. So what? Jesus does, he's not after behavior modification, he's after transformation, because he makes us into something brand new. So we get the revelation of God's truth, and then what converts revelation to transformation, remember? Obedience, obedience. That means we can't just be hearers of the word, but we need to be what? Doers of the word. Faith without works is dead. If you want a good spanking, read the book of James. It's always nice. If you're ever feeling a little self-righteous or a little bit like you need a little, just need a good spanking, just sit down, 
Read the book of James. You can read it in one sitting in 20 minutes. It's only five chapters. And James just has a way of like, okay, Lord, I need grace. Because faith without works is dead. Ultimately, our faith, true faith, is going to produce authentic change that's going to lead to the right kind of works. Does all that make sense? So we are forever, as long as we're pursuing the Lord Jesus, we are in a, in a continual pattern of receiving information, we're believing it by faith, we're getting revelation on God's word through what we read, what we hear, experience, testimony, whatnot, we hear it, and then we get opportunities then to obey what God is saying. And it's the obedience part that's not always the easy part. Because just face it, when I say the word obedience, does that bring up like warm fuzzies and hearts and cupids and all that? I mean, you know, nobody likes the word obedience. Obedience, ooh, because our flesh doesn't like obedience. Because our flesh wants to do its own thing, but yet obedience says, I'm going to put my flesh on the barbecue grill and let it just burn. I'm going, to, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Christ is going to live inside of me. And that's every single day. But we find out, though, that is actually the path to true life. Even though obedience will cause our flesh to hurt, we discover a spiritual life that's abundant in Jesus. That is so good and so wonderful and so marvelous. Even though the flesh is burning, we step into full life. Jesus would say this way, unless a man loses his life for my sake, he's never going to find a life. There's, it's, it's impossible to experience resurrection power unless you experience death. Resurrection is on the other side of death. Unless something is dying, there's no resurrection to follow. So all that to say this, it's actually worth it. And if you've been following the Lord long enough, you know this to be true, don't you? That the, those things that you have had to die to, those things that you once enjoyed and brought pleasure and solace and dependency on, once you let that burn up, God gave you a life more abundant. You found out that when you live according to the flesh, the enemy can come and kill, steal, and destroy. But when you live according to the Spirit, you step into life and life more abundant. Truth, how many in the room that's walked with Christ for more than two years or maybe two minutes can, can, can say it, it's, it's worth it. <laughs> it's worth it. It's worth it, isn't it? Just the, just the hope that we have in Him it's worth it. I watch the news, and I try to really not watch much news these days. I'm limiting all that. I used to be such a news guy. And, and I really, but every time I watch the news, or what, what I try to do is I'll have my little news app. I open it up to make sure there's no, like, bomb. We're not at war or something like that. But every time I hear the news, I think to myself, Lord, I'm so grateful for the hope that I have in you. I'm so grateful that I'm not looking to a um, political party. I'm not looking to a 401K I'm not looking to the world's systems to find my hope in. But so many are, aren't they? Their life is all wrapped up in the things of this world. And the Bible invites us into this beautiful thing to say, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be renewed by the, by the transforming of your mind, the renewing of our mind by God's word. So good, isn't it? So as we go from information to revelation to transformation, how it works in my mind and how I frame it up is I kind of imagine that to be a river, you know, information, revelation, transformation. And I imagine three feeder streams that's going to go in to this process. And the three feeder streams are out of three questions that we're, that we're in the process of answering. One, who am I? First question. Second question, what does God want? And the third question, why is it so difficult? And if we can answer those three questions from information unto revelation, it can provide the most outstanding transformation of our, of our hearts. So do you see? That's, at least that's how my mind works. So when I think of what is happening to me at any given moment, I'm forever gaining information around, around those three questions. Who am I? What does God want? And why is it so difficult? There are probably more questions, but to me, those three pretty much are the main ones. And I'm forever learning and gaining information and revelation unto transformation. Everybody get that? You're looking at me like, boy, you're a little bit warped. Maybe I am. I'm just really crazy. But I hope it'll, hope it'll help. So we're in the process of asking the question, who am I? Last week, don't want to go back and unpack everything, but the central question was this, that 
What does birth determine? Identity. Birth determines identity. Do you believe this to be true? Can I prove it to you real quick? So I'll have my dad stand up. Go ahead. Stand up real quick. Come and stand beside me. Now, is there anybody in the room that can tell this is my dad whom I love? Can you, can you tell? Right? How can you tell? Because, right, I'm, I'm almost as good looking as he is, right? I'm almost as good looking as a, So I am the product of his DNA. Therefore, I look like him because birth determines identity. That good? Yeah. <laughs> Love my I'm so glad he's here. So birth always determines identity. You're going to look like your mom and dad when they created you out of their chromosomes. Now, when you are born again, according to John chapter 3, great Bible verses, that when Jesus is engaging this Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus who sneaks off to Jesus at night, and they're having this conversation, and Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. How many of you were raised in the Baptist church? Anybody Baptist? Did you hear this? I love Baptists because they talk about you got to be born again, got to be born again, got to be born again. They're exactly right. Sometimes we tend to say often you need to get saved, you need to get saved. Yeah, that's true, but I like born again better because, because born again is a much more powerful phrase as to what's really happening. When you're born again, that means you've become somebody brand new because birth determines identity. Now you're no longer a child of the devil. Now you're what? A child of God. And you are brand new in him. This is the central issue for me personally, and I believe for large quantities of the body of Christ, that we have minimal revelation on our identity in Jesus. We just have a little bit. Because we tend to focus primarily on what does God want me to do and not primarily on who I am in him. So if I'm going to spend a, a majority of my Christian life around God, what do you want me to do? If I spend 95% of my pursuit on that and only 5% on who I am, I'm going to have minimal revelation, information and revelation on who I am in Christ. And I'm going to struggle. I'm going to have difficulty. What's the old hymn? You know, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what pain we needless needless bear, right? All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. That's such a powerful thing, isn't it? That in other words, we put ourselves through a lot of pain, a lot of unnecessary stuff because we don't really understand who we are in him. So what I'm advocating for me and for all of us is to adjust ourselves a little bit and spend more time searching the scriptures and asking God, give me revelation on who I am in you. In other words, with that in mind, I challenge all of us to go home sometime this week and just sit down and read through slowly the book of Ephesians. But as you are reading through the book of Ephesians, do it with this in mind, who am I? As that is the filter as that as the Rosetta Stone, if you will, to interpret the book of Ephesians and then just read it and let the Lord speak to you about who you are in him just by reading the book of Ephesians. But not so much, God, what do you want me to do, but who I am. So once we are born again, we become a new person in Christ. The sin problem has been dealt with. It's gone. When Jesus looks at you, he does not see sin anymore. Jesus has come to destroy the work of the devil. In other words, sin is no longer a factor in our lives as it relates to how God sees us. Do you realize how good of news that is? That means that we can approach the throne of grace boldly because God sees us clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. This Jesus whom we serve He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Man, you just just got the keys to the kingdom. 
in that truth. You just got the keys to the kingdom right there. So the power of sin is broken. And this is where we left off a little last night. The power of sin is broken, which means we can choose not to sin. Now this messes with us a little bit because some of us don't believe that. Some of us don't believe that we actually have the power to choose not to sin. Some of us think, well, I have to sin every day because I'm, I'm, just a, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. You are not a sinner saved by grace. You are no longer a sinner. You're a saint. You're a saint. No, I'm a sinner. No, you're not a sinner. You're a saint. Cancer has been gone. It's gone. You are now a saint. You, we no longer live under the dominion of sin. Before we were born again, we had no choice but to sin. Now we have a choice because we've been set free from that. Isn't that great news? That when, and, and if we're all honest enough to admit, we know that, right? When we choose to sin, we probably know before we did it. We know why we're doing it, and we certainly know after the fact. Now, don't confuse temptation. Temptation is not sin. So don't confuse that. We're all going to experience temptation because temptation is is not sin and temptation can be pretty grueling at times but temptation is not sin how do we know that because Jesus was tempted in every way without sin so we know we are like Jesus when we're experiencing temptation isn't that good news I'm so grateful temptation is not sin aren't you aren't you glad that when you walk around you don't have a bubble on your head that's scrolling every thought that you're thinking None of us would ever leave the house, would we? If we had the little cartoon bubble up there and like all of our thoughts were just kind of scrolling by for everybody to see what, what we were thinking, we would never leave the house. That's a, that's a, that's a scary thought because that's a realm where temptation happens, but that's not sin. So then we need to define then for a Christian what is sin? What is sin? Because it looks a little different for us than it does for the unbeliever. The unbeliever was conceived in sin. It's a terminal condition that ultimately leads to hell. But for us, sin's been broken. It's gone. But we can still choose to sin. So what does that mean when we choose to sin? It's when we choose to walk after the flesh. We choose to walk after the flesh. Check out Galatians chapter 5. We know we're in this battle between the spirit and the flesh. And Paul's language is really strong here. They are at enmity with each other. They're fighting each other. You feel the fight every day of your life, don't you? That's the fight is happening in the realm of temptation. You feel the struggle. The struggle is happening in the mind and the soul, and that's where the battle is happening, against the flesh and against the spirit. So then what is the flesh? The flesh are the patterns that we've established the beliefs about how we get our needs met. So I kind of think about it this way. When we were unsaved, imagine, um, uh, imagine my hand sort of going down into mud, right? just a big thing of mud. So my hand is in the mud, but my hand represents sin. When I repented and became born again, God dealt with the sin and took it away. So my hand goes up, sin is gone, but what's left in the mud? The imprint of my hand. So the sin is gone, but we still have the imprint of it in our souls. Those are our patterns of behavior from our past life, the beliefs about God and about ourselves, and the way we get our needs met. Does this make sense? The sin is gone, but the impression of it is still there. That's why we continue to have to grow and struggle and fight and crucify the flesh because we're dealing with the imprint that sin left in our soulish realm. That's why we're invited into this process that Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 5, that he prays that we would be sanctified spirit, soul, and body. So we're in this process called sanctification. That's how we begin to grow. That's why when we learn truth, information to revelation, what's happening is truth is coming in and it's displacing lies. 
Many of us carry with us a lot of problems because maybe we had a mom or a dad or a friend that said they hated us or they said that you're ugly or you're gonna be a failure and, and we hear the lies that are spoken to us by oftentimes people that we love and care about and those lies come in and we then begin to believe those lies and we incorporate that into, into how we live. And as we grow in the knowledge of God and the, and, the, and the eyes of our heart are open, the truth comes in and it begins to expose that lie. Many of us look in the mirror every day and the first thing we see, the first thing we think is that we're ugly. It's true. Now, why would we think that? Because somewhere along the way, somebody said that we were ugly. Or somewhere along the way, we looked in the mirror and we actually said, to ourselves that I'm ugly. And then we believe that lie. And then it affects, distorts our view of ourselves and our view of God. Many of us have come from homes where our fathers were not great earthly fathers. They were not there. They were abandoned. Maybe you were abandoned by your natural father. Maybe he abused you, never said he loved you. Maybe he did awful things to you. Who knows? But what happens is that leaves an imprint on your soul and then when we start talking about God, our loving Heavenly Father, we have a distortion because the word Father means something else to us. So then we need the truth of God to come in and to renew our minds and transform our minds so we don't believe that lie anymore that our loving Heavenly Father is not that Father. That's why as we begin to grow, we need to displace the lies that we believe with the truth of God. And this is a vital process that we're all engaged in. That's why we have to stay engaged with the Lord, you see. We stay engaged with the Lord. So, all that said, choosing to walk after the flesh, ways, patterns, beliefs about how we get our needs met now that we are born again. The moment you get saved doesn't mean you've arrived yet. You may be set free, but you're not home free. You're set free, but you're not home free. That means there's still a process that we have to undergo to allow these things to, have, to, to change inside of us. So I'm convinced one of the things that we have to overcome is, is how we get our needs met. Our need for contentment, significance, and security drive much of what we do. We want to have contentment in our life. We want to feel significant, and we want to feel secure. And the world offers us many ways that we can get these needs met temporarily and sometimes in a very unhealthy way. Contentment. I know a lot of people who can't go to sleep at night until they consume a bottle of wine. It's true. I'm not against drinking wine, not against having a beer, but I do have a potential problem with somebody who can't get to sleep at night and relax unless they have their bottle of wine or their six pack every night. I'm not faulting alcohol, but I'm saying as we run to things to gain contentment, or what about significance? Some, I've talked to single people who wanna be married, and I get that, man. Listen, I was born and I got married. I can't even remember not being married. But when I, <laughs> I got married when I was 18. So I don't even know what it's like not to be married. But many of us want a husband or a wife because we're looking for that husband or wife to give us significance. And so we can find significance once we find our soulmate or that job or that promotion or that affirmation. So we're looking to all that to gain significance. And then when those things don't happen like we want them to happen, then what does that do to our identity? We bottom out. And we think less of ourselves because of that. Because we're looking to other things for significance. What about security? We all want to feel secure. I've met people that, that man, in, in, in order to be secure, I have to have all these T's crossed and all these I's dotted. I got to have my house paid for. I got to have three months in my emergency fund and saving. I had to have like two or three Roth IRAs taken care of. I need to have really good health insurance. I have to all these things all taken care of. And whew, I can finally feel secure. How many of you realize those aren't bad things, but that is an illusion to security. 
because all it takes is 2007 or 2008. Things can happen that just blows away. And then what are you left with? And sometimes God shows up and says, oh, by the way, uh, your Roth and your 401k in your house, uh, sell it all and give it to the poor and come follow me. Is, is that something God could do? Is that, is that like in the characteristics of God to actually do something like that? Take everything that you think that's your security, sell it all and give it to the poor, and I'm just going to take care of you. But if I have my security and all that stuff, it's going to be very difficult for me to be obedient when God asks me to do things because I can't, because I'm holding on to this for my security. So in truth, part of our understanding of who God is, as we discover his love, we learn more and more that my contentment, my significance, and my security are in him and him alone. And I'm not looking to any of these other things anymore. Isn't that a beautiful thing? So the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, I believe, he would say these incredible words. He would say, in possessing nothing, I possess everything. I love that verse. In possessing nothing, I possess everything. Now, does he mean that he needs to give everything away and run around naked and sleep in the cold? Is that what he's saying? It's not what he's saying. He means that I don't possess anything. So I don't own anything. He owns me. I own nothing. Therefore, if I cease possessing things, then I no longer have to control anything anymore, and I can just walk in true trust in him. So the path to freedom is not more stuff. The path to freedom is just not owning the stuff you have. So the enemy is not the stuff. The enemy is owning the stuff. If you don't possess it and you don't own it, then you don't have to control it anymore. So the average size house in the 1970s was about 1,200 to 1,500 square feet. That was the average size house in the 70s. How many of you grew up in a house like that? Common middle class house about that size in the 70s and 80s. You know what the average size house is today for middle, upper middle class folk? Upwards of like 2,500, 3,000 square feet. And guess what? We fill those houses up, don't we? All of our cabinets and closets. And now, do you know what you see popping up everywhere? Storage. Have you ever noticed the rise of storage facilities? Because our three and $400,000 houses aren't big enough anymore for all of our stuff. So we got to rent storage containers and the pods they drop outside our house to store more of our stuff in. Do you, do you, like see, do you see the trend? So we acquire more and more and more and more stuff. We possess more and more and more things. And we have to control all things and maintain these things because we possess so much. So the key is, is not possessing anything because my contentment and my security and my significance is not found in anything I own, but it's found in him. And it's a gradual revelation unto that. Then that means then God in his infinite wisdom can begin to trust us with more things because he knows it'll flow through us and we won't hold on to things. Unless we're willing to be a conduit, then God's going to say, I really can't trust you with much because everything I give you, you want to hold on to. And you want to stuff it in your pockets in these things. So the goal is, is that God wants us to find all of our needs met inside of him. Because we don't have to achieve our identity through the acquisition of stuff, but we can receive our identity from him. We don't achieve our identity, we receive our identity and we walk into that. So here's a really important thought here. What is discipleship? I hit this last week, but it's so important. My personal definition of discipleship is simply this, being reparented by our Heavenly Father. That's what discipleship is. If you're born again, that means you're a child. Children need parenting. So then who's your parent? Your Heavenly Father now is going to reparent you. That's all discipleship is. Just because you read four discipleship books doesn't make you a disciple. What makes you a disciple is your loving Heavenly Father is discipling you and growing you. That's all discipleship is because we need to be reparented. That's why, that's why Jesus would say, you know, that we need to become like little children in order to see 
the kingdom of heaven. Childlikeness is a good thing. Childishness is not a good thing. Paul says, I put away childish things when I became a man, and then we're invited to childlikeness as we follow Jesus. Amen? All right. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. We move away from a, a, a slave mentality to a son reality. So when I say son, you can, you can put daughter, same, same meaning. From a slave mentality to a son reality. This passage in 2 Corinthians six seventeen, Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So he invites us out of the world into him, into what kind of relationship? Not slaves, but sons and daughters. We're getting invited into this, very clear in Scripture. So the goal is not to live a pleasure-free life. It is, to, it is to live in the pleasures of God. So the goal of God is for, not, for us not to live a pleasure-free life. I've talked to Christians before, and it's like, man, it's like, What's the song? Gloom, despair, agony on me, deep, dark depression, excessive misery. I mean, it's like, that's what it means to follow Jesus. I don't get to have fun anymore. What a sad, isn't that sad? That's not who we're supposed to be. He's not going to give us a life that's pleasure free. We get to live in the pleasures of God. What are the pleasures of God? Joy, love, and peace. Can you put a price tag on any of those things? How valuable, how valuable is love, joy, and peace? They're, they're, they're of infinite value. You know, when you're in ministry for as number of years as I've been, I've had the opportunity to, to be by the bedside of, of many people who, who were dying, you know, hospice, and, and, and I was able to have pretty, some serious conversations with, with people that would ultimately be dead within a few days, but they were still aware some had a lot of resources, some were rich, some were middle class. And you know the conversations that you have with folks like that? They're never talking about, man, I just wish I could have gotten that Maserati. Man, I just wish I never got that house I wanted. I never got the boat I wanted. You know the conversations that you have with them? If I could just have, man, just one more day with my, with, with my kid, with, with my wife. I mean, there, it has nothing to do with stuff. It's about the eternal things that God has for us. But it's also possible to you know, leave this world in the pleasures of God. I remember years ago, I was at the bedside of, a, of an older lady who was, um, who was in our church, and she was such a, such a saint, loved Jesus her, in, her entire life. It was one of the holiest moments of my life, and I remember being by the bedside, and her name was... Um, her, her name was actually Ofra was, was her name. And I was, and I was talking to her, just having this nice conversation. You could tell she was getting kind of close. So she was kind of coming and going, coming and going. And, and, and I, I will never forget this. She all of a sudden got really awake and she looked past me, right? I'm, I'm in front of her. She like looked right past me, like toward the door and her eyes got real bright. And she said, he's here. I'm like, oh my God. It's like, who's here? And I knew she wasn't talking about me. He's here. And then she's looking right like I can't see anything. Again, remember, I only see like .0038 of what can be seen. So I'm, I'm completely missing it. But she's seeing it. And she looks that direction. She said, he's here. And then she looks and she gets quiet for maybe 10 seconds. She's like, yes, I'm ready. And then she just kind of drifts off asleep. And then five minutes later, she's gone. Now, come on. Isn't that how you want to go out? Man, that's how I want to go out, man. In other words, when we live in the pleasures of God, I believe that's how we can transition from this life to the other life. And this lady, this saint of God, learned how to live in the pleasures of God. You know, the key lie of the enemy is that God is withholding pleasure from us. One of the lies of the enemy, he wants to perpetrate upon us that God is somehow withholding something good from us. And then it breeds temptation because God's withholding something from us. 
It's the very same lie he used in the Garden of Eden, correct, with Adam and Eve. That's what he did with Eve. You know, God's keeping some information from you. He's, he's, he's holding back. He doesn't want you to know this good and evil thing. And, 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 and that, that, that lie he sowed in Eve was that lie that God's keeping something from you. And that's a lie of the enemy. God's not keeping anything from us. We sin when our heart is not satisfied in the Father. So I promised you a definition of sin for the unbeliever. That was the terminal condition of sin going to hell. The definition of sin for the believer is anything we choose to do to find our significance, our security, and our contentment in that's not God. That's sin. When we choose to find our contentment, our security, our significance in anything other than God becomes sin for us. Do you see how subtle that is? So that means we don't just qualify sin by negative actions. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, lying, cheating, thieving. I mean, that's kind of obvious stuff. But did you know you can do good things and still be in sin? That you can help people, you can be altruistic and philanthropic, and you just are so motivated to help people because you're drawing your significance from your ability to help those people. That's what gives you value. My value comes from the codependent relationships I'm cultivating. Scary, isn't it? That's why, oh, but I'm doing really good things. I'm helping all these people. Yeah, but the, the, but the subtlety is you're drawing your significance from that and not who you are in him, and then that becomes sin for us. And, the, and then the Lord exposes that and says, listen, I'm not looking at your outward appearance. I'm looking at your heart. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that the word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing between bone and marrow and soul and spirit, exposing the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Before him, our whole lives are laid bare. He is our high priest. But it goes on to say we have a high priest that sympathizes with our weaknesses. Aren't you grateful? That he exposes us not to harm us, but to show us truth and bring conviction and not condemnation. There's a difference. If condemnation comes, that makes you feel bad about who you are. Conviction comes and makes you feel bad about what you're doing. And that's the distinguishing factor between the two. And the Holy Spirit shows us that. It's like, oh my goodness, because I can tell you, I was the kind of person that I drew a lot of my identity from how I would help people. I, I felt better when I was helping somebody. And then when I wasn't able to help them like I used to help them, then I actually didn't feel as good because I was drawing significance from that. This happens when we, when we, Quit becoming a first commandment first person. What's the first commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you confuse those things, it can be a problem. They're not the same thing. They're two separate commandments. The first one we must do, we must be a first commandment first people. Loving God of our heart, soul, mind, and our significance is in Him and Him alone. Secondary to that is loving our neighbor as ourselves. For those of us that are compassionate, lovable people, it's easy to confuse those two things. That we can think we're fulfilling the first commandment by doing the second commandment. And then we find out that we're drawing more significance in helping people than we are in who we are in Jesus. You see how subtle it is. That's why we're praying Ephesians 1:17, Lord. Open the eye, spirit of wisdom, revelation. David will pray in Psalms, Lord, search me and know me. Search me and is there any unclean thing in me? Lord, show me these things so I then can repent of these lies, these imprints that have been left in my heart. I can allow truth to come, displace the lie, and then begin to draw off of our ultimate source, which is God. Because we know that, right? One day in eternity future, heaven and earth are going to all pass away. All that's going to remain is him. And he, in the age to come, will be our contentment, our security, and our significance. So that's the eternal state that we're looking toward that began the moment we were born again. And we began that process that happens right now. And we can either cooperate with that or we can hold off till we get there. But again, to quote the hymn, 
Oh, what pain we all bear and all that mess, whatever it is. Whatever that song is. All right, Psalm 1611. You make me, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Forevermore. We get to pick which table we're going to eat from. You get to pick. 1 Corinthians 10, 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. I think of it like this. You walk into the golden crowd, you got lots of choices. You can choose what you're going to eat. You can choose the things that are the pleasures of God, or you can choose the pleasures of the world to meet those needs and the things of the world. And how many of you have done it before? How many of you have lived lives in the past where you were looking to the things of this world for contentment, security, significant? We've all been there, right? And how did it, how'd that pan out for you? Did it work? I mean, did it, like, did it really, really work that well? Everything that the world offered us that, we, that was bringing a temporary source, did it really last that long? Or it faded pretty fast, didn't it? Faded really, really fast. But God doesn't, doesn't fade. When we put our hope in him, he lasts. We abide in his love. John 15, 9 through 11. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. Just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So we say we have to abide in him. The branches need to stay in the vine. When we're in the vine, what happens on the branches? What grows? Fruit. So then think about it. Fruit then is the byproduct of remaining in the vine. So we don't have to try to grow fruit. We just need to stay in the vine, and the fruit is going to be the natural product of staying in the vine, which John tells us here what it means to stay in the vine is to abide in what? His love. That means we live in his love. As we've been saying all night, I pray, Paul, um, Philippians 1.9, that your love may abound still more and more for real knowledge and all discernment. That's what we're talking about, that, that we want to abide in the love of God. And when we do that, when we stay connected to Jesus, when we stay experiencing his love, what's going to start just kind of popping everywhere? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. These things are just going to start happening as the byproduct of us being in the vine. So we're not spinning our wheels. Oh, God, I just need to love. I'm just going to try to love him more. I'm going to try to have more patience. And we're just going to, like, like we're trying to create fruit out of our own willpower through behavior modification. And that's frustrating. That's very frustrating because it doesn't work. It doesn't pan out. If I only have to do one thing and do it really well is if I can just stay in the vine, stay in the love of God, abide in his love, continue to get information, revelation, transformation in who I am in him, then the natural fruit of that is going to be love, joy, peace, patience. It's just, it's just, it's just going to happen because birth determines identity. The more I understand who I am, the more my identity is gonna to conform to who I am and the more I'm gonna look like my father. So just like I look like my natural dad, the more I understand who I am in him, the byproducts I'm gonna look and act and talk more like Jesus. Does that make sense? So it, it, it really simplifies the Christian life a lot for me. Because now I don't have 20 things to do or 80 things to do. I really only have one thing to do. And if I do that really intentionally and really well and abide in the vine, everything else is going to be the byproduct of flowing out of that heart alive in the love of God. You see? It simplifies things so much. That means I just need to do that. That means when I'm worshiping God, Lord, I'm not feeling anything right now, but Lord, I, I know you love me. I just help me, Lord. Give me some revelation on your love. And I realize I can't make it rain. I wish I could. In this case, I wish I could make it stop raining, but, but Lord, I need to feel your love. 
And sometimes you can feel a drop, sometimes you can feel a light rain, sometimes you can feel a downpour, sometimes it is a tsunami, but we just need to continually experience the love of God. I have found in my own life, I can, I can pray, I can say, Lord, I just, I'm just gonna, just gonna unhitch myself from all these things, these momentary light afflictions. And Lord, I just love you, I know you love me. I just, I just need to feel your love, I just need to feel. And more often times than not, I can actually feel God's love. Just like I can feel somebody hugging me. I can feel the love of God. I know it, right? But we're, but we're more than just brains, aren't we? We got souls and, and we got bodies and, and God will touch every level of that. And I promise if you get before God and say, Lord, I just need to feel, I need to, I need to send your love, you're gonna feel the love of God on your heart. It may not always be a tsunami. Sometimes it's just a, it's just a light touch. Sometimes my wife would not always full throttle hug. Sometimes it's just a, a pat or a hole in the hand or a light brush, you know, with, with her arm. But you know what I'm saying? There's a touch. And God is always willing to touch us if we just allow him to do that. And we sense his love, and it's such a beautiful thing. And it just reminds our heart that, Lord, your love is better. Your loving kindness is better than life. And the more you experience that, the better and the, and the better he gets. Let's skip down to just a couple of thoughts. You can read this on your own. I will read this um, C.S. Lewis quote. I like C.S. Lewis. He says, the more we let God take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Think about that. The more we let God take us over, the more truly ourselves we become because he made us. He invented us. He invented all the different people that you and I were intended to be. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give up myself to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. Isn't that beautiful? Because remember, most of us live our lives out of the impression that sin left we live our life out of the indentation that sin left. We live out of those patterns, those beliefs, and those lies. It's when we discover what God has done and who we really are in him, we really discover that's who we were actually made to be, that God made us. I may have told you this in the past. When I was in school, I had a Greek professor. I had a um, like two and a half years of uh, Greek, Koine Greek. If you don't know, the New Testament was written in Greek, Old Testament Hebrew. So I, I, I like, like two and a half years of Greek. And talk about a, a difficult language to learn. I mean, Greek is tough. You know, and I had like literally two and a half years of Greek. And I mean, and I was a pretty good student. I mean, graduated 4-0, magna cum laude. I mean, I, I really was, a, I was a good student. And I say that not to puff myself up. It's just, I was a good student, but I could barely read the book of First John after two and a half years of Greek. Barely. I couldn't even get through one chapter in Luke. Remember, Luke was a physician, so he wrote pretty much high-level Greek. So a very complicated language. But one of the things that I learned from my professor, French Arrington was his name, and, he, and the word for Greek for man is the word anthropos. Anthropos. Do you know what word we get from anthropos? Anthropology, which is the study of man. So anthropos is the Greek word for man. So when you see man in the New Testament, you can look in the Greek, it's the word anthropos. Anthropos, when broken up into its constituent parts, actually means to look up into the face of. To look up into the face of. So remember, humans, we are mammals, but we're not like any other mammal on the planet. Have you ever noticed all other mammals on the planet walk on like four legs? And you will see their... Um, trajectory of their view is looking down from the earth. We are made as a homo erectus, right? We walk if you have good posture and not suffer from any kind of scoliosis or something. But if, you're, if you have good posture and you walk as a human, your natural body is actually built to look up. Your whole skeleton was designed to look up. Every other mammal that walks on the, on the planet, it looks down. Our trajectory is made to look up. So God fashioned us. Even in how we are built, our mortal frames are actually fashioned to have a position to look up at him. He crossed every T, he dotted every I. That's why we don't walk around on four legs. He made us that we can look at him. 
David would say this way, I look unto the hills, where does my help come from? I look unto the Lord. There was an occasion in the Old Testament when Abraham and his nephew Lot, they were traveling together, they got a lot of cattle and oxen and sheep and they were, they were arguing, the people were arguing over because there wasn't enough, there wasn't enough pasture to feed all the animals. And so it came time for them to split and go their separate ways. And Abram goes to his nephew Lot. All right, Lot, you're the youngest, but I'm going to let you pick first. Which way do you want to go? Do you want to go this way or you want to go that way? And the scripture in Genesis, you can read it. It says, and Lot looked into the valley. He looked down into the plains toward the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, I think I'm going to go there. And then Abram says, oh, well, I'm going to go up into the hills. You see where those two choices led. Lot looked down into the plain. What was easy and simple would ultimately lead to his destruction, or at least all of his animals and family and whatnot. But Abram looked up into the mountains. God made us to look upward toward him. Isn't that good? I love that. All right, last little example here as we wrap up this question on who we are. Um, I want to look at Luke chapter, this isn't in your notes, so, but if, if you have a Bible, you can look at this, because this is really interesting to me. Luke 15 is a very familiar story. We know it, it's the story of the prodigal son. Remember that story? The story of the prodigal son. Who is familiar with that story? I love the parables, because to study a parable is like looking at a diamond. And diamonds have so many facets to it, so many angles and ways, ways to look and ways to interpret the story. But what's interesting to me is the juxtaposition between the younger brother and the older brother. You remember the story, right? You had the younger brother, he gets his share of the inheritance, he goes off, wine, women, glory, spends it all, ends up in the pig pen, comes to his senses. I can go back and to my father's house and live as a slave and be good, makes his way, father sees him, runs out, greets him, welcomes him home, puts the robe on, the ring on, the sandals on, has the fatted calf, a big party ensues, it's a great day. My son who was lost is now found. And then we have this, 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 this elder brother and the conversation that happens between the father and the elder brother. And I want you to see this because for many of us that have been following the Lord for a long time, many of us that's been in the church for many, many years, we may have some things in common with the elder brother. So listen to this. The older brother became angry and refused to go in to the party that was going on. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father. Like, Look carefully at these words. He answered his father, look, all these years, I've been, what's the next word? Slaving for you. Serving you or slaving for you. The actual better translation is the word slave there. Slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. First little warning shot just got fired over the bow about our elder brother here. For years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet... You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And you see what's going on. Now look at the father's response. My what? Son. Now the elder brother just said earlier, I've been slaving for you. The father's responding, my Son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because his brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. Do you see what's happening? That this elder brother, the entire time he was living at home with his father, he identified himself more as a slave in following orders and not as a son. That's why the father says to him, my son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. You could have had a fatted calf party with your friends every week if you wanted to because it's all yours. It's always been yours that we've had access to. So the point for us is this. How many of us 
live out our faith on this planet primarily saying, Lord, I'm just going to be your slave and, and, I'm, and I'm just going to follow all your orders and, and never live in the pleasures of God. And God is saying all the time, you're my son, you're my daughter. Everything I have is yours. And that's why Paul would say this way, I have blessed you with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. He would say, I have given you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Or words, God saying, everything I have is yours. But yet we're living with blinders on, again, asking the flawed question that's more concerned with God, what do you want me to do, versus Lord, who am I? So it's possible, it's actually possible to be saved to live in the Father's house and not have hardly any revelation on us being a son and us being a daughter. So that's why I am a big proponent for all of us, myself included, to shift our focus, to make a tweak in how we view our Christian life and be less concerned with what he's called you to do and way more concerned with who you are and your identity. Because once you get more concerned about that, you're gonna get more in the vine. And then what happens is fruit begins to grow, and then these predestined works that he has made for you from the beginning of time will begin to manifest themselves. So your good works becomes the byproduct, not the product. The product is knowing him, the byproduct is all the things that we're supposed to do. Because knowing him then creates a situation that when we begin to serve him, we're not going to make the fatal mistakes of finding our significance, our security, and our contentment in all the things he's called us to do. Because if our identity isn't firmly squared in him, we're going to begin operating in doing and works, and our identity is going to be more wrapped up in those than who we are in him. So you see the conundrum. You see the conundrum? I know this conundrum because I lived in it for 25 years. I know it all too well. I look in the rearview mirror and I can see how my whole life revolved around that. I was much like that elder brother. I operate that way. I knew I was a son, but again, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, God, I know you love me. What do you mean to do? <laughs> and I really wasn't focusing on the right question. So last thought is the last of the last thoughts. I promise this is the last. I'm actually turning this off. It's the last thought. Jesus, imagine, I wish I had this on, on a, a slide, but just Put in your mind with me, Jesus in a, in a circle, right? Inside the circle, the word Jesus. And around the circle, write these words in your mind. Savior, Lord, Father, Bridegroom. Savior, Lord, Father, Bridegroom. What happens to many of us is we get introduced to Jesus and he becomes our Savior. And he saves us. And that's a beautiful thing. But many of us stop right there. And that it never goes beyond that. He's always my savior. We hit this a few weeks ago. We know we were saved from something, but we were never told or we were never discipled that we were saved unto something. It's more than just being saved from something. It's unto something. Now, you may have got discipled a little bit. You may have grown. You may have stayed in church. And you may have migrated on beyond Savior. And it's, oh, he's more than my Savior. He's actually my Lord. Like, he's my king. And you begin to read the word. And you realize, oh, I need to, like, I need to obey this guy. This is important. You know, here's, here's the word. Here's the, here's the to-dos and the not-to-dos. I'm going to take this really seriously. I mean, he's the commander-in-chief. Yes, sir. I'm going I'm to obey you. And then he becomes your Lord. I think for many of us, we get stuck right there. I think the elder brother was right there. I think he got kind of stuck right there. Savior, Lord. But we never like make that next jump to understand he's not just Lord and King. He's also Father. Because Father, because birth determines identity, it's from the Father revelation is when we really begin to discover our identity in him. And then as we begin to know the father, then what happens is he begins, because what does every father want to do? The, the father wants to, wants to introduce his son to his bride. So the father then is going to introduce Jesus to you in a whole new fresh way as your bridegroom. You met Jesus as your savior, but the full revelation is that he's actually our bridegroom. 
we're the bride, and we're going to marry him one day. Savior, Lord King, Father, Bridegroom. We can get stuck in either one of those spots, and we need all of them. And I don't think it's a progression. I think we can get revelation on all four at the exact same time. We don't have to go from one to the other. I think we need revelation on every four continuously all the time to understand who Jesus really is. Okay? Give you a lot to think about. So here's the challenge for this week. I challenge us all, myself included. Take time, open the book of Ephesians, sit down and just read it. But read it through the lens. Okay, God, I'm going to ask you, give me a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Help me to see who I am in you. Who do, who do you say that I am as I read this book? And let God begin to speak to your heart and begin to look under the hill. Where does your help come from? Your help comes from him. Amen? So, Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for our time together. Thank you for your powerful word. Thank you for your revelation. Lord, we can't live apart from you. We can't live apart from you. So I ask you for the gift of hunger today. I ask you, Father, Lord, to just to, as a result of our time together tonight, Lord, let, let a log be put on that fire that you put inside of us that would, that would cause a surge of hunger, Lord, for the things of you, that, Lord, we would in turn now go and we would start adding some more wood and some more pine cones. And some, Lord, we would cultivate the fire of God inside of us. That we would begin asking that question, Lord, who am I? Lord, I know, God, I know I am just such an infant in these things. And Lord, I want to know more about these things. I want to learn how to, how to better abide in your love. I want to be able to say like John said 2,000 years ago, oh, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. That I know what it means to lean against your breast, that I have the courage, the confidence, and the revelation that John had, that he just sat right down next to you, Jesus, and he felt comfortable enough to like literally lean on you, Jesus. Oh, God, I want that revelation. I want to have that courage. I want to have the confidence. I want to have that level of revelation. Lord, that's really what you want, and it's actually okay <laughs> And I can do that. And you've invited us in to do that, Lord. That we can all be your favorites. We can, every one of us, we can all be your favorites. We love you, Jesus. So thank you for your sons and daughters. I pray you bless them. Make your face to shine upon them. Give them great peace. Lord, release dreams and visions tonight. God, even as they sleep, I pray for rest. I pray for divine efficiency. Lord, as they carved out this time to be with you tonight, I pray you pay it back 10 and 100 fold into every other area, Lord, tomorrow as they, God, get up and go about their day. We love you and bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's do it again next week.